Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the sexual health of teens in the age of Me Too. What can you learn from a canner? And celebrating the Persian New Year. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle filling in for Ashley Ford. What would you think about having an armed police officer at the entrance to every school in New York City? Would you trade that for a Democrat-controlled Senate? That's a question state Dems are asking themselves as we fast approach the state's budget deadline on April 1st. Here's the deal. Senator Simka Felder, a nominal Brooklyn Democrat, proposed legislation that would put armed cops in front of schools. Felder's a key figure in the Senate. He, along with eight other Democrats of the IDC, or the Independent Democratic Conference, vote with Republicans, giving them a legislative majority. This majority enables them to kill progressive legislation, like a gun control bill that failed to pass in February after the Parkland shooting. Felder was instrumental in denying its passage. But the balance of the Senate is precarious. There's a special election coming up on April 24th for two Senate seats. If the Democratic candidates win, the IDC says it will consider realigning with the Dems but they still need Felder to put them over the top. So regarding armed cops, Felder recently told city and state, to paraphrase, if the governor were to get this done, would I do whatever he wanted? I'd do acrobatics for him if he got it done. Not sure about his fitness to do backflips, but this signals he'd be willing to swing back to the party of his affiliation. But there's a problem. Many Democrats, including those in the assembly, don't support this bill. The assembly speaker, Carl Hasty, has said more guns are not the solution and only provide an illusion of safety. And some say that including it in the budget will only complicate the approval process. It's a fraught subject, no doubt. There was a bit of a freakout last week when a rumor circulated that New York City was going to remove armed cops from schools where they already patrolled. The proposal is certainly better than arming teachers. But don't New York City kids see enough armed cops in their day-to-day -day lives? School shootings are a problem, let's be clear. But that's not the main problem facing New York City students. No children should feel unsafe in their school's environment, but making it feel like a security zone with metal detectors and armed guards arguably makes students feel less safe, especially students of color, like they're the ones being policed. The likelihood of a mass shooting at a school is small, but even when they occur, as Parkland demonstrated, an armed guard was no deterrent. But when a shooter fails to show up, thankfully, will the armed guards start seeing innocent students as suspects? On the show today, a talk about teen sexual health in the age of Me Too, learning and living from collecting cans, and Nehru's is upon us. Find out what that means for the Persian Americans in your midst. But first, these things. A report published late last week revealed that during 2016-2017 school year, nearly 10% of New York City students were homeless or living in temporary housing. Analyzing the behavior, about a third of these students revealed that the majority were chronically absent, and the parents of those who were absent more than 75% of the time were never contacted by the city. The study showed these students were also underperforming, with only about 12 to 15% able to do math at a grade level, compared to 38% of their peers. New York City has the largest homeless population in the country, and that number is up 4% since 2016. Kushner companies are back in the metropolitan news again. They've been accused of falsifying paperwork on more than 80 work permits, stating that 34 of their buildings had no rent-regulated tenants, when in fact they had hundreds of individuals who were receiving reduced rent. It would have allowed them to skirt stricter oversight to make sure that these cumbersome tenants wouldn't be pushed out to resell the units at a higher price. Indeed, some tenants filed lawsuits saying they were harassed by all-night construction and inducements to leave the property. The Kushner companies claimed, well, the paperwork had been outsourced to a third party and they corrected the omissions a year or two later. 
Have you noticed fewer Funyuns on your bodega shelves recently? How about Fritos or Cheetos? That's because Frito-Lay doesn't have enough drivers. The chief executive of the parent company, PepsiCo, cut their pay by as much as a third last year. So a lot of them quit. That's meant managers have had to cover the roots, but there simply aren't enough trucks on the roads. So Brooklyn stores have had to suffer. These days, it ain't easy being cheesy. Stay tuned for our first guest. Last year, the Trump administration cut funding to the Obama-initiated Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program as the rate of teen pregnancy had been dropping nationwide. Also discontinued was a study into how we can reduce teen pregnancies even further. So what seems to have replaced these initiatives? Funding for abstinence-only programs. Here to tell us about how this affects teens in New York City and other teen health issues is representative from the New York City Department of Health and director of NYC Teens Connection, Estelle Raboni. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So, so tell me, why is it important for teens to talk about their sexual reproductive health? It's important for young people to talk about their sexual and reproductive health because it's, it, it just impacts so much of their life. A young person who gets chlamydia and gonorrhea, for instance, is at higher likelihood to get HIV infection, also increases their rate for infertility later on in their life. So being able to control their fertility and, and also their health and make sure that they don't get pregnant before they're ready to really impacts their long-term academic success and also their economic success. Hmm. And when you talk about HIV and AIDS, prevention or, or contracting HIV and AIDS, the rates in Brooklyn are really high, some of the yeah. highest yes. in the state. The right, are, exactly, some of the highest in the state and continues to be high. So while we're, we've seen teen pregnancy uh, decrease, we've actually seen STDs continue to increase. And so we really would like to concentrate on that. Right, and as we mentioned in the intro, um, the cuts for funding for some of these initiatives to educate teens about you know, preventing early pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies, and things like that. Um, and then the studies that, um, the attendance studies to help us understand these issues better, uh, how is that affecting New York City and the work that you're trying to do and I guess the messaging of the issue nationwide? So it is uh, directly affecting our work. It, in fact, it is uh, directly impacting our work. We are, are at risk of ending our, our program, which has been very successful in New York City. We've seen a 60% decrease in teen pregnancy rates across the city. In Brooklyn specifically, we've seen a 63% drop of teen pregnancy rates. So it directly impacts our work. It's 83% uh, of our budget. Mm. So if we don't find the resources to supplement or to you know, uh, replace the 83%, then we can't continue to do the work that we're doing. Can't continue to do the work you're doing for how many? For about 15,000 young people in New York City. So oh. we concentrate most of our work in central Brooklyn and most of the Bronx and in the north of Staten Island. So those are the areas of the city where teen pregnancy rates are highest. Wow, so without that work, the danger could be what? The danger could be that the teen pregnancy rate will increase, uh, abortion rates will increase. We've also seen abortion rates decrease as teen pregnancy rates have decreased. Um, we'll see abortion rates increase, STDs uh, and HIV increases, and also um, higher school dropouts. So mm -hmm. school dropout rates are, are correlated with teen pregnancy rates. And so what do we know about abstinence-only education? 
Well, it's completely unfounded. Uh, it's not based on any evidence uh, or scientific evidence or research. Um, in the during the Bush administration, when they focused on abstinence-only sex education, the states that accepted abstinence-only funding, they saw their teen pregnancy rates increase dramatically, uh, and it's really just reckless uh, for young people's health. Hmm. And so, you know, when you talk about um, teens and communicating with them about issues relating to sex and sex ed and stuff like that, I have a 13-year-old stepson, and I. I think about engaging him in these conversations, and I never quite know how to engage with him in that way. You know, what is the proper time? How can I get them to open up about this? And I don't know if you have any recommendations for me or other parents out there about how to be communicating this. I know that's an important part of that education is parental education. Absolutely. So you start early and often, and you start where the young person is. So you make yourself available. You become an askable parent, what's called an askable parent. You say, you know, are there any questions? And you listen. You listen mm -hmm. about relationships. You know, very often we think as adults uh, and adult mentors, in young people's lives that everything is revolved around sex, and sometimes it's revolved around relationships. Young boys, young men want to know, what does it take to be a good partner? Mm -hmm. um, what does masculinity mean? What does it mean to be a man? Um, they may even have questions about consent with the, the conversation, the public conversation you're about saying Me that, Too. You're saying that, though, I want to get into Me Too Absolutely. in a second, but you're saying that the, the young boys or young girls will be having these questions themselves. And, Absolutely. And yet, these may, may be questions that are unasked because mm -hmm. they may not feel comfortable. How do I ask these questions? So how do you create that comfortable space? You you really start with you know just asking questions yourselves you know and taking it very slowly. You might it might be a conversation in a car. It may mm. not be a, a face to face conversation. It may be a conversation that you have you know taking a walk or you know doing a jog or something like that. And it could just be like you know tell me about what's going on in school mm. and just really listening and listening about you know so you know how how are things going? How are you feeling about your body? You know things like that. At 13, you're kind of focused on puberty and and you know how are you going to look and relation to you know your father and and that kind mm. of thing so I have an 11 year old son and those mm. are the kinds of questions right. that that I get asked and it seems like there would be a lot of opportunities for entry points these days especially a 13 14 15 year old who mm -hmm. is consuming the news watching the world around them hearing a lot about me too how is that um, impacting the work that you're doing too, and adding to the conversation or creating spaces for the conversation Absolutely. to develop. So we, in addition to the work that we do with young people through schools and clinics, uh, we also have a youth leadership team that is composed of young people, 30 young people from Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Staten Island. And they are actually doing research right now on consent. So mm -hmm. interestingly, most of the research out there on consent is done with college audiences, um, you know, trying to prevent a rape culture, and, and so on and so forth. So they are actually focusing on issues of consent among high school population because, again, that conversation, that education never, ever comes up. So mm -hmm. how do you know if someone is really consenting, right. if they're saying yes, but their body is saying no? Um, those are some of the things that these young people are investigating. Hmm. We recently had somebody on talking about um, teen uh, dating violence, which was something I mm -hmm. was surprised to learn was also kind of included in the uh, um, umbrella of domestic violence, mm -hmm. and that that is something that is fairly prevalent um, in our our society and in the city, is that something you also work? Absolutely, with? and and identifying you know what is teen dating violence. You know, mm -hmm. unfortunately, among a lot a lot of our young people, they is particularly young females, 
uh, they tend to think, well, if my boyfriend texts me constantly, that means that he loves me, um, instead of actually seeing that as that's a troubling sign that maybe that person is a little bit too controlling about mm -hmm. how you're spending your time and who right. you're talking to. So um, we do address those issues as well. And if an individual or, or a teen wants to get involved with NYC Teens Connections, how can they do that? Are there entry points? Are there um, meetings that they can go to? Or what, what are the resources available sure. to them? Sure. So we are always looking for young people who want to become part of the youth leadership teams. Mm -hmm. um, I would suggest that they uh, visit the health uh, website, so the nyc.health, mm -hmm. and look for New York City Teens. Mm -hmm. And they'll find our website there. So maybe just as a, as a last question to wrap up. I, you, this, you stand to lose this funding at the end of the year, is that correct? At the end of June. At the end of, oh, sorry, at the end of June, correct. June 2018. What will you do in the absence of that funding? Where will you go to find funding? Will you go to the state, the city? Who might have it available So we are considering every single resource, city, mm -hmm. state, uh, any conceivable resource, private funding, foundation funding. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also looking possibly to retract some of the mm -hmm. work that we're doing. So we're currently reaching 15,000 youth, mm -hmm. um, and we might have to retract some of that work that we do. Wow, and you're in the same boat as, I think, what, 81 other municipalities that have also lost funding Correct. for doing this kind of thing? Correct. Um, so are, are we worried that then there might be a spike again in teen pregnancy, an epidemic? And I mean, is how is this really just completely short-sighted? Or I mean, what's, what's driving this? It's short-sighted. It's um, really focused on um, just wrong-headed uh, science. Mm -hmm. I can't describe it any other way. It's not mm -hmm. based on any anything scientific. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very conservative response, and a, it's a reckless response mm -hmm. to young people's health and future. And is it motivated by um, sort of the, the kind of the pro-life influence of of the Republican Party, would you say, that they view any kind of education being uh, harmful or be promoting abortion? Yes, I would, I would have to say that it's driven by, um, by this pro-life movement, um, or I would actually say anti-choice movement, because mm -hmm. it's anti-choice not just in terms of sex education, but also contraception, mm -hmm. whether it's for teenagers or for adults. Mm -hmm. um, the very people who are in charge of uh, gutting this particular program are also the folks who are in charge of whether or not they're going to give contraceptions uh, to agencies like Planned Parenthood mm. um, that you know the poorest and the most vulnerable people depend on. Right. So um, clearly there is an agenda out there to uh, take away this information, take away the services, mm. and it's to the detriment of a lot of young people. Wow, wow. Well, I mean, that sounds not surprising, but still awful. Um, in the 15 seconds we have left, it sounds like if anybody wants to do anything about this, it really means getting out in the midterms and trying to Absolutely. reverse control of, of the Congress. Um, anything else? Yeah, I guess that's it, right? I mean, that's kind of right, exactly. the, the safety valve for most everything these days. Well, thank you so much for coming out and joining us today. I know you've got a busy schedule, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you. In 1983, New York State implemented a law aiming to cut down on solid waste. It cut roadside container litter by 70% and helped to recycle 5.1 billion plastic, glass, and aluminum beverage containers, totaling more than 336,000 tons in 2016 alone. It also created an unanticipated opportunity for enterprising individuals. It was the bottle bill, and it meant that some bottles and cans could be redeemed for a nickel. 
Not the 10 cents like it is in Michigan, those lucky ducks, but enough for a living, says our next guest, who met with Ashley the other day to dispel the many misconceptions that people might have about canners, those whose way of life revolves around collecting cans. Here's that conversation. Pierre, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Ashley. Can you tell me really quickly how you got started in the space? I had once worked in a music academy. I thought that through the AFRP program, but I thought that was my life dream. Mm -hmm. And I found out I wasn't happy, Ashley. Mm. I literally was not, found myself not able to get up in the morning to go to work. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, what's going on? I was so unhappy. And I just said, you know what? I can't take this no more. And I left. Now, when I left, I didn't have nothing, mm -hmm. but I just had faith. One day, I come out the house, and I see all the blue bags stacked with bottles and cans. And I'm saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. That's money. I went upstairs, got a shopping cart, applied the first principle of picking up cans, which is don't be ashamed of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Picking up cans is a lesson in humility. Mm -hmm. You have to think business. You have a goal. What are you trying to do? In my case, I need a recording studio. Mm -hmm. So I got to get out there and go do it. Because of picking up cans, I passed a pawn shop that had something in it, Ashley, that I wanted since I was 23 years old. And I couldn't believe it. There it was. Right. This, the exact same, and I, I said, oh my goodness. I went out, got the shopping cart, mm -hmm. got the couple of hundred dollars together, came back and I got it, a Fender jazz bass. <laughs> so, you know, I took, I, I went to a guitar repair shop. Right. And I asked them, did they have these kind of basses? So the guy said, yeah. So he said, here, here they go right here. I mm -hmm. said, well, how much is that? When he says, oh, that's $800. I said, what? He said, this is 600 So that told me right there, I can do anything. You could do anything. How do you deal with, or was it hard to get over the stigma? I know you said initially that, you know, the principle, the mm -hmm. first principle of picking up cans is that you don't have to be ashamed and right. you're not ashamed of what right. you're doing. But how do you get to that place? Is it immediate? Uh, with some people, I, I think maybe it is, mm -hmm. you know, but <clears throat> I found that you're looking at something that could be lucrative. You know, it could, you, you, can, you can get money from it. Right. What the heck is there to be ashamed of? <laughs> I mean, Ashley, I can pay my rent right. off bottles and cans right. and take my incoming money and mm -hmm. bank it. Right. I don't have to touch none of it if I don't mm -hmm. want to. The fact that people... How do people react to you in the world when they see you picking up cans? Uh, well, usually people don't bother me or say anything. Right. As a matter of fact, I've met people mm -hmm. who were professional people, cameramen, uh, mm -hmm. who wanted music lessons. <laughs> so I go to their houses and I give them lessons. Yeah. So, matter of fact, tomorrow I have to give lessons right. in Manhattan. But no, uh, most people are all right. Now you find yeah. once in a while somebody who's a jerk. Right. Once you've come to understand that they're ignorant, they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Because they're not doing it. No, they're not getting the money no, from it. No, you're paying your rent. No, they're and they're are, out here. People, pe 
people where I at sure we can, right. where we do our recycling, mm -hmm. you have people there actually making two hundred dollars a day, two hundred dollars right. a day. Two hundred dollars. They get day. there at six in the morning, waiting for it right. to open up. Once it opens, they start. They don't leave till it's closed. They come wow. in. With, I mean, man. Tell when, me about sure we can. Tell me how did that. Uh, sure we can, based on what I know about it, started out with a nun, mm -hmm. uh, Sister Anna, mm -hmm. and one of the canners, a guy named Eugene. That right. was years ago. They were out picking up cans. Mm -hmm. They began to form uh, the idea, well, let's be a non-for-profit organization. Mm -hmm. Let's serve the community. And that's what we've been pretty much doing. We have now a composting program. And really? yes, and we're getting together with other people because we want to supply electricity to the community. Right. We want to get the big boys out of the way. Right. I, I don't know if I should say it like that, but this is the truth. So did this start as a redemption center? As yes, a, yeah. yes, and we also have food. Mm -hmm. People come in, some of them are homeless. Right. Some of them have a home, but what they're going out in the street getting is to pay the rent and for their kids and anything extra helps. Right. So they come in and here's home cooked food. Wow. You know, uh, you might have clothes. I, now when I first saw this place, I said, wait a minute, what mm -hmm. is this? You know, I've seen this type of, I said, somebody believes in God. Mm -hmm. That was my first thing, somebody here believes in God. Yeah. Sure enough, I found out who Sister Anna was and I said, right. I see, you know, I see. And um, I found that it's like a family there. That's fantastic, and a lot of people need that. Which, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that people pretty much automatically associate the collecting of cans with homelessness. Yes. And they're not, they're not, like, <laughs> there are often quite a few people who are collecting cans and bottles who are not homeless. Who, what they don't know. Yeah. And what the greater majority of the people don't ever know. Some of those people who bring in cans are landlords. Really? You have some who have big cars, fancy mm -hmm. suits. You have supers, super who bring in maybe fifteen hundred dollars, wow. five hundred dollars that they store up in their basements. Wow. In other words, people from all walks of life. I have mm -hmm. couples mm -hmm. walk up to me and say, "Excuse me, sir, how much money can we make doing this?" Wow. Wow. You know, and I, and I tell them that before you even think about doing it, you have to do your research. Right. You can't just get a shopping cart and go out mm -hmm. in the street and start picking up and think you're going to make a lot of money. You won't. Right. I had to start my own route. Mm -hmm. I had to go wherever it took me. And I found out, well, wow, if I go from my house mm -hmm. over here and come back, that's $40. Wow. But I said, well, wait a minute. What happens if I go here and turn here and then come? Wow, there's 50, you know? So I said, well, wait a minute, how long did that take? Two, three hours. So wow. some people make two or three trips a day. Now, I personally don't have the time to do right. a lot of trips a day. There are other areas of my life that I have to pay attention to, right. such as my health, right. exercising, and music. Right. I have to study music. There is no way I can go without doing that. Does it? And here's the thing that I think a lot of people would be worried about. Mm. Do you feel like when you are in the mode of collecting cans, that when people look at you, they don't 
necessarily see a musician. They oh no, no, they, they don't. They, they, they always. They see what they see. Right. I have been tuned. If, I don't care what you think. Mm -hmm. Caring about what people think is bondage. Mm. If you yeah. cared about what people think, you wouldn't wear that chain. It's true. Or those ear, you know, you you would you wouldn't do any. You would be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Now let's say you have a, a a wife, three kids. You lost your job. Mm -hmm. How am I going to take care of my family? Now, somebody might say, hey, man, go get some bottles and cans. You can get $100 a day. You got a car and everything. The guy goes, does it. But every time he goes to pick something up, somebody's looking at him. He doesn't touch it. Now, he comes back home with the three kids and the wife. And, well, baby, you know, where's the food? Oh, these women were looking and I didn't touch. No, no, no. It's not a way to live. No. It's not a way to live. Can I ask you, what do you learn about the city? And our habits. Oh by my collecting. goodness! <laughs> no, this is really serious. Yeah. I have learned that in this society, we waste, we waste, we waste, mm -hmm. and I believe there's a day coming we're going to be punished for it. Mm -hmm. Throwing away food that has not been opened, that has not reached an expiration date, throwing away clothes that are still worth something. Mm -hmm. Somebody cracks a little chip on their TV, $700, throw it out. Can I just ask really quick, what would you say to the public, someone like me, someone who's watching the show right now or mm. listening to the show right now, who's thinking, you know, I may not be like a person who goes out and cans, but I would like to make it a lot easier for people to get my cans or to have them in a position that it's easy for them to, to, get, them. to get to them or to be able to redeem them. What's the best thing for us to be doing? How do we make it easier for cans? Place the the cans and the plastic cans and the big bag together, place mm -hmm. glass separately. And put it where they can get it. Some people hang it on the gates. Yeah. You know, and you come by and you get it. Or they get the know the person, mm -hmm. you could save it like that. Now, if they want to cash cans mm -hmm. and say they don't want to run every week, I say if they have the space, like in the basement, mm -hmm. store them up. Right. Just store them St up. My friend goes to, to the distributor in the Bronx, mm -hmm. $1,500 every time. Wow. So you figure if you're a working person, you have a family, and your mm -hmm. paycheck is always stretched, there's a way you can. A real easy way. Yeah. To bring a little more income. Yes. Well, can I, the last thing that I want to ask mm. you here about Sure We Can okay. is if somebody specifically wants to get involved with Sure We Can, mm -hmm. how do they do that? Well, you can come by the office, mm -hmm. it's 219 McKibben Street, or right off of Bushwick Avenue, mm -hmm. uh, and just go in the office and talk to Malvin, mm -hmm. or ask for Sister Anna, and there's always going to be somebody who will take you around and show you. Like right now, I sit as vice president on the board of Sure We Can. Excellent. So, you know, I, if I'm there, I'll take you and show you, or right. somebody else will. But we're always open for help. Fantastic. Always. We, we're right now in the process of trying to strategize how we can buy the property. Oh, wow. So we need $3 million, and uh, we, we're, we're strategizing, because we want to be independent. We don't want right. no landlord. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to have to even mess with Connet if we don't have to. Right. We want to be totally independent.
It's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. By the way, Wednesday night, it's the latest episode of our Brick TV show, Going In with Brian Vines. This week, it's all about struggling to make it in a city like New York. And we'll take you to Sure We Can, where you'll spot our friend Pierre again. Tuesday, March 20th, just another new day. Well, yes, but for Iranians and Persians, it means much more than that. At the exact moment of the vernal equinox, millions of Iranians and Persians of all religions will celebrate the Persian New Year, Nowruz, which literally translates into New Day. It's a secular celebration, the Think Thanksgiving, that, that marks the beginning of spring, and it's the first time it's being celebrated since Trump's travel ban went into effect back in December. The ban has made it extremely difficult for Iranians overseas to come celebrate with loved ones here in the U.S. To talk about the holiday in the midst of these fraught times is Iranian-American, Brooklynite, and educator Sanam Akhlakh. Thanks for joining us on 112BK. I hope I pronounced your last name in correct. some realm Thank of, you so much for having me here. Thank you for coming. So thank you for being here to educate us about this holiday, which kind of it was introduced maybe more broadly into our consciousness during the Obama administration, who hosted some celebrations. Do you know, was that the first time that, that, was, that Nowruz was observed and celebrated in the White House? I think it was the first time that was celebrated like that mm -hmm. in the White House, but mm -hmm. I think the Clinton administration okay. acknowledged it as well. Uh -huh. um, but yes, it was wonderful to uh -huh. have that sense of inclusiveness and bring mm -hmm. the Iranian community to the mm -hmm. um, White House. And uh, it was, I think, for our children, it was wonderful to hear the president of the, this country mm -hmm. celebrating Nowruz. And I remember like the smiles on their faces, which uh, when we played the interview for them, when the you know he was congratulating the community, that um, you know hearing him saying Happy Nowruz um, mm -hmm. to the community, and they all loved it. Uh, not so much under this administration. I don't expect any invitations are being extended to friends of yours. To no, unfortunately, no. For this White House, it's um, a different one. Yeah, and I, I know you know you're not a legal scholar, and you haven't um, maybe. Don't know the ins and outs specifically of, of the travel ban, but what has your experience been, or the experience of those you know, um, been as the, in the lead up to this holiday and their preparations to celebrate it? How has it been different this year? I mean, of course, I mean the whole travel ban was a disaster um, in the past year and a half. I think it's. Uh, in, the, in terms of like practical issues that I think it's caused a lot of um, stress and also in just emotionally, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Nowruz is a time that the families gather together. That's, mm -hmm. that's really the main thing about Nowruz. And um, the sense that people can easily come and go and be together, you know, grandparents and parents and, mm -hmm. you know, see their grandkids. Many of the people have been separated um, the past, you know, 30, 40 years. And um, they, you know, now it's a time that everyone wants to celebrate together um, for Nowruz and they can't do that, unfortunately. I mean, mm -hmm. or it's even, uh, it's become so difficult right. um, for people right. that they don't, might even not try right. to go get visas um, to mm -hmm. come see their families. Well, let's talk about maybe some of the, the lighter yes. side <laughs> of it and some of the warmer sides since, the, you know, it is a, a celebration. I mean, how has, um, has Brooklyn and New York City kind of shaped your experience of Nowruz and how have you been able to celebrate it here? I mean, we have a wonderful community here. Um, you know, I run a Persian school in Manhattan, in West Village, mm. and we have over 160 students. Wow. So it's a big, big community. So for me personally, I have an amazing community, and we have, you know, in this past um, this weekend, on Saturday, we had like six, 700 people at the Asia Society mm. celebrated Nowruz with Iranians and non-Iranians, uh -huh. um, all of us. And then yesterday, Sunday, was the event at our own school. So our families you know, came together, and we all sang and celebrated and danced together. So um, personally, in New York, in Brooklyn, um, it feels 
you know, home, and it feels uh, very noruzi. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, in, in general, in the country, I feel it's 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 mm -hmm. a bit different. Mm -hmm. What kinds of things do you do at home? Um, what kind of observances do you have at home when you're celebrating? So Nowruz is a big celebration. The festivities start like a few days um, before um, the actual mm -hmm. turn of the. Um, season at mm -hmm. Vernal Equinox, um, the last Tuesday of mm -hmm. the year, people jump over bonfires, and the whole idea is to get rid of all that was bad in the past year. And the verse that people say when they jump over fire is um, that may my paleness be yours and your mm -hmm. glow, glow and warmth be mine. It starts with that, and of course, spring cleaning and buying new clothing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the moment of uh, no rules, everyone gathers at the table, which basically uh, it's called haft sin. Haft mm. means seven, and sin is basically um, S in Farsi. So uh -huh. there are seven elements that they begin with S, and they all represent all that's good in life. It's mm. love and uh, beauty and affluence and health and growth and rebirth, um, mm. uh, knowledge, wisdom, patience. Mm. So those are um, the elements that we put on um, sofa haft sin at the moment of the turn of the season. We have to all the family sits together and basically um, rings the bell. Um, into the new year. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, for 13, uh, 13 days, um, it's all celebration. People mm -hmm. visit each other. Wow, the um, younger people go and visit the elderly. The elderly gives them Nowruz um, gift, which is AD. Mm -hmm. And it continues on the 13th day, people um, all go out, picnic, and celebrate together and just finish the festivities. So it's, it's a long mm. <laughs> celebration, right. and it's a, uh, you know, regardless of the religion, political yeah. views, everyone, everyone celebrates. Mm. Um, Imagine maybe you know, in a, a little more truncated way in the U.S. as opposed to maybe what the celebration yes, is Yes, we like, did jump know, over bonfires in oh, Brooklyn. Yeah. Oh, we all did, of oh, course, wow. every year. That's, that's serious. Uh -huh. I'm sure the fire marshals are very confused, like, what's happening? <laughs> um, they also, the past few years, I think they've got the permission in East Village Day um, in one of the local gardens. They mm. do that, um, big, right. like hundreds of people go there and jump over bonfires. The um, celebration, it's at home. So mm -hmm. everyone, of course, does that. And there's also big, the community does big um, which is the 13th day that they go on picnic. So they're so, doing it. <laughs> right, well, that's great. Well, uh, we're just about out of time, but yes. maybe very briefly, could you tell me about your organization, Pardis, and, and what your yes. mission is? So Pardis for Children um, started six, seven years ago. I mean, it, it literally started when I had my first child and mm -hmm. just wanted to have a community for them because we don't have our families around and just bringing them, these um, children together. And also um, the most important part is to introduce the culture and language to them. It's, mm -hmm. you know, with all this going on, I don't want them to hear Iran, uh, you know, about Iran from the news. Right. Iran has a beautiful, the you know. Of evil. Uh, yes, it's the culture, the amazing right. food, the music, the very rich um, literature, architecture. There are all these sure. amazing things about um, Iran that I want them to learn about and be comfortable with it and mm. um, have connection with their roots so, oh. and their heritage. And that's what we're really doing at Paradise. I think kids come there and they're happy and they're learning about all these different things um, about really the culture. Important. Yes. Oh, great. Well, great. I'm glad to learn about it. I'm glad to have you here. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for, for joining us. Here. Thank you, and happy Nowruz. Oh, yeah, Nowruz Piruz, I was <laughs> meant to say. Much. Yes. All right. Uh, tomorrow on 112BK, Jarrett Murphy of City Limits sits down with a member of Borough President's staff, now a candidate for State Senate. The producer of our next Be Heard Town Hall meeting, Me Too, is just the beginning, gives us a preview of next Wednesday's event here at Brick House. And we'll hear all about the web series Cooking with Granny. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, 
Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>